Thank you for listening to a Quiet Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Okay, there we go. Now it's on. The audio this week is going to be really weird because I'm going to be starting three minutes into the sermon. When revival happens, I, I, I just I will be exhilarated. I want to see it. I want to be a part of it. And maybe by God's grace, when I'm an old man, 90, 100, because everything less than 90, right, is very young. When I'm an older man, I want to look back and say, my goodness, we, we did not plan this. God just showed up. And we rode, rode a wave a decade of seeing God just change this city. My goodness, to be a part of something like that. Some more definitions of revival. Ian Murray, revival is a manifestation of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in an uncommon measure, bringing refreshment to the church and salvation to the world. J.I. Packer, revival is God touching minds and hearts in an arresting, devastating, exalting way to draw them to himself through the working from the inside out rather than the outside in. May it be. May it be that we get to see revival here in our midst. May it be that people come just beating the door down, trying to get in. (coughs) We have to open the windows for people standing outside to be able to hear. And church after church building after church building throughout Carbondale and Southern Illinois is packed and people don't know what to do. What are we going to do? We're going to have to build buildings and gather in larger areas and meet outside because God is on the move. And friends, it's happened throughout history. It's not just that now we're so sophisticated that it can't happen again. And yeah, in revival in the past, it was country bumpkins who didn't have an education. No, in highly educated areas where people had experienced the work of God hundreds of years before, when God shows up, it doesn't matter who it is. It could be King Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't matter When God shows up, people bow the knee. They either run from Him or run to Him, but they can't be unmoved. And I long to see a day, long to see a day where the Holy Spirit of God is working in an unusually powerful way where people are crying out, just have mercy, God, have mercy upon me. Because they hear the law of God and they're crushed. And they hear the mercy of God and they're overwhelmed. Don't you want to see it? I want to see it. The thing is, I don't think many of us, myself included, actually believe God can do something like that. We may speak of His omnipotence and we may speak of His presence and His power, the Holy Spirit's working. But in reality, I think we look at this life and this world in such a pessimistic way to say, you know, God's really not that active. And I want to see people's sins forgiven. That's what I want to see. I want to see deathbed conversions. I want to see people willing to live and die for the glory of Jesus. And I long for that. I really do. I want to pray for it, ask God for it. If that happens, when the work of God, when real revival happens, it's not man-centered. Meaning it's not, hey, come and hear and come and see what's going on at our church. And our church is all named and everybody wants to hear about a church. When a revival happens, the glory of God is central. People care about the name of God. They care about God being honored. (coughs) When God is at work, Jesus is glorified. God is honored. The focus won't be ourselves. The focus won't be on what we're doing to attain revival. If God brings revival here and somebody asks, what are you guys doing? I want to be able to throw our hands in the air. In any church who's experiencing revival, when people are coming in droves to meet Jesus and be baptized, I hope by the grace of God, people rightly say, we're doing nothing. God is doing it all. We're literally, I have no way to explain this. There's no way to do a workshop. 
and come and learn how to do this. This is simply God on the move. <coughs> Service times won't matter. Lunch plans devastated. When graveyards called cities experience the work of God in that way, cities come to life. Carbondale, Carbondale, just like any city out here, is a city that looks to be alive, but in fact is a graveyard. So is every city you live in. And preaching is actually, I heard this recently and I think it's so good, preaching is so insane because you're literally walking into a graveyard and calling people to life. Dead people walking, expecting that through the gospel being proclaimed, the Holy Spirit will bring dead people to life. When the Holy Spirit of God is on the move in that way, shining a spotlight on Jesus, people bow their knee, repent of their sins, and come running to Jesus. When God, God is at work, worship happens. And why, why do I say this? This morning, the very first word of our text this morning, and I'm so thankful for Martin Lloyd-Jones who helped me see this wonderful point in verse 8. I just want you to see the first word in verse 8. And here it is. First. First. One word. First. Now it's interesting as we begin to go down through this section, we don't see a second. Or we don't see a next. We don't see a therefore. We don't see a development in literary style from the word first. You just see the word first. The structure is abandoned. He has a thought. He begins to get into it as he is led by the Holy Spirit. And that thought is abandoned. And I want you to think about that. I want you to consider it because the Holy Spirit of God is leading Paul to write this letter to the church at Rome. And we see examples of this in the letters of Paul throughout the New Testament where he'll begin a thought and then it will be the longest run on you can ever see. Like if he, he turned it in, <coughs> one of the most brilliant minds ever, one of the greatest, the greatest theologian of all time besides Jesus. He had a brilliant mind. He was a scholar. He was very brilliant with the books. But if he was to turn many of these letters into an editor, that editor would turn that back and would mark it up with red letter and make it and change it and change the structure. But this is literature on display. This is God's desire for letters to be worshipful, not just informational. Martin Lloyd-Jones again says that Paul has a head. His, Paul has a heart as big as his head. Head. Maybe the man with the greatest mind in the history of the world also has a heart for worship to be led by the Spirit of God. As the Spirit of God leads, we see in this passage here in the very first chapter of Romans that literary style gets thrown out the window. You don't have a second. First. No second. No third. It's just gone. Paul gets into this and he begins to worship as he is writing. As he is thinking about this church, he is brought into the very presence of God. I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. It's interesting, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 6, we get Paul declaring the great gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to hear this. After saying you're dead in your trespasses and sins, after saying you follow the prince of the power of the air, after devastating humanity with bold claims about their spiritual deadness, Paul brings us to the biggest but in all of the Bible. In verse 4, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us. Now, I want you to hear this, that by grace you have been saved. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. By grace you have been saved. Thank you very much, Andy. Boy, that's kind. Goodness gracious. 
Pastoral care. Thank you. By grace you've been saved. Yes, thank you very much. That's amazing. Paul, in this expression, the, the literary structure of the verse in Ephesians 2, it goes like this. But you were dead in your trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us up with him. But in between, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him. He inserts almost this just flamboyantly grace-filled expression, by grace you have been saved. It's like he can't wait to get it out of his mouth. It's just inserted there and it's out of place. But because the Spirit of God was leaving him, it, leading him, it's right in its place. Right where it should be. And so when we get into the book of Romans, I want us to model the Apostle Paul. I, don't, I want us to worship through this book. I don't want us just to hear preaching, spirit-inspired words. I don't just want us to hear the book and think, that's nice. I want us to be carried along by the Spirit of God. I want our lives to come, I want us to be awakened by the Word of God. And here is Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, never getting to what's second. Never getting to what's third. Style just goes out the window. He was carried along by the Spirit of God. And I wonder, I wonder what was it that the Spirit of God carried him along to? What was it that God's Spirit, after the first, comma, what, okay, what's he going to get into? What's going to get his juices flowing? What's going to get him excited to where he forgets what's second? Well, let's see. Look at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you. Wow. Paul longs to see them. Thanksgiving, verse 8. He gets carried on after the first point. First, he gets carried along into thanksgiving. In every one of Paul's letters, with the exception of Galatians, Paul begins the letter with thankfulness. He thanks God for the believers. He's so thankful. He's writing and pinning these letters out, considering the church, and he just is overwhelmed with thankfulness. And this is where the Spirit of God took them, took him. He wanted this church to know that he has been praying for them. He has care for them. Church at Rome, I love you and I think about you always. I'm praying for you constantly. God is my witness. I'm not just making this up. I love you, church at Rome. And I want you to know how thankful I am for you. He wants to let the church know. But there's something unique about the church in Rome. Because we see in the book of Acts, we see that Paul, the Apostle Paul, he spent a year and a half in the city of Corinth. A year and a half. And a year and a half spending every day. And remember, Paul was a single man. Therefore, he had time to do stuff. spend time with people and he would go from house to house and would spend day in day out in Corinth for a year and a half investing in people building friendships going fishing with Daniel sitting by a fire hanging out in homes eating meals he would have known these people personally very much so in Ephesus he spent two years in Ephesus we see in the parting of ways in Ephesus in chapter 20 and 21 of Acts that it involved weeping, tears, crying. And he reminded them, didn't you remember, don't you remember how I've admonished you with tears and how I've wept with you and I've been with you in your homes 
and we worship from public and from private and house to house. And don't you know how much I love you and I've given you my very self. I am innocent of the blood of all of you because he gave his entire self to the church in Ephesus. Now what's interesting about the church in Rome is that Paul had never been to Rome. He knew some of the people in Rome. We see in Romans 16 that he greeted people by name. So some of the people he knew in the past had moved to the city of Rome. But he'd never been there. A majority of this ragtag group in this major metropolitan, cultural, urban, worldly, world center called Rome, Paul didn't know a majority of the church there. And you see in Paul's heart, a love and thankfulness for the church just because of the church. He didn't have memories with most of these people. He didn't have and share meals with them. He didn't plant this church. You know, when you went into a city, and when Paul would have went into Ephesus and that church was planted, when the Spirit of God showed up and the city was literally turned upside down and all of Ephesus, the culture in Ephesus, the economics in Ephesus were changed because people were taking their idols and burning their books and the major economic drive in the city was so disrupted that they caused a riot in the streets and they wanted to kill the Apostle Paul. Now imagine if you were there in that church and you saw the power of the gospel in just a couple years so penetrate that city, so go into that city where even the economic system of the city was turned upside down. Wouldn't that be exciting? That you got to see this major urban center. You went into, it's like planting a church in St. Louis and seeing St. Louis so turned upside down. So many people in that city had become Christians. And instead of it being the number one crime city in America now, it's the number one, I don't know, loving Jesus city in America now. And the people there who are the crime busters there in that city hate you because they've lost their market. Nobody's buying drugs anymore. Nobody's doing things they used to do anymore because the Holy Spirit of God so turned that city upside down. If I was there, talk about meaningful, talk about memories, thinking back, oh my goodness, I remember seeing this happen with this group of people. But in the city of Rome, he didn't have those stories. He just wanted them to know how thankful he was for them and burdened he was for them. He knew the people in Ephesus. He knew the people in Corinth. He knew the people in Philippi. He knew the people in Colossae. He didn't didn't know the people in Rome. So what's his connection? Why does he have this affection? Does he have the same sort of affection for the people in Rome? And if so, why? What drives Paul's love for the churches? Is it just simply relational? He really likes them and he has a lot of good buddies there. Or is there something deeper? Is there some deeper bond that drives his love for this church? Well, in verse 8, we see that he thanks God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Now, notice that he doesn't just say, I'm thankful for you. That for Paul, when he's thinking about this church in Rome, he's thankful to them through Jesus Christ for all of you. In other words, when Paul begins to think about this church in Rome, he can't help but thank God through Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for doing this. In other words, if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, there would be no church in Rome. There wouldn't be no family. There would be no brothers and sisters. There would be no longing to go to Rome to see them. He cannot help but thank God through Jesus Christ when he thinks about his brothers and sisters, regardless if he knows them personally or not. It's not a general thankfulness for God creating Christians in Rome or creating people who live in Rome. This is very specific to a specific group. He is thinking about 
this small church in Rome, and he is thrilled and thankful for them. And we almost miss the forest for the trees at times. We can forget how amazing it is. We can forget how amazing it is that we have brothers and sisters in Christ here in the pews, and we have brothers and sisters in Christ gathering throughout the city, and we can almost be lackadaisical about the fact that we have brothers and sisters throughout this nation and throughout the continent of Africa and Asia. All across this globe, we have family. And for Paul, when he thinks about these churches he hasn't met, it overflows with praise. I'm not like that. I'm really not. Because for me, seeing brothers and sisters in Christ, I just forget how supernatural that is. I just, I'm around Christians. And when I think about the fact that right now through China, even though they're experiencing churches and Christians, they're experiencing massive persecution again. Church buildings are being burned to the ground. It costs something to be a Christian there. More than a little bit of online ridicule. And I don't, Think about brothers and sisters the way that Paul is thinking about the church in Rome. Every time we meet a Christian, we meet a supernatural being who's been brought from death to life, a brother or sister, who we're going to spend eternity with, actually knowing them. And when I hear the Apostle Paul, it's just like, now that's a brother that I'm convicted by. Because I don't think about the church the way he thinks about the church. When we see believers anywhere, we should be so thankful to God for them. It's because of God that they will sit at the table with us and eat with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we look at another Christian, they are testimony to the saving power of God. When we look at these baptisms downstairs, we're not celebrating the fact that each one of these believers found their way to God. We're celebrating the fact that Riley and Jade and Rachel have been saved by Jesus. And we are so happy for them, and we are so proud of Jesus for doing this. We are so proud of Jesus for saving them. And we're so thankful that they get to experience the saving power of God. And when we watch these baptisms, we ought to be thankful that, my goodness, God is at work. He is saving people. He is calling people from death to life. But I find that I am often not in awe about that. It's just like, eh, what's the big deal? Nothing like that for Paul. He's so thankful to God for all of them in Rome. And there's a reason, there's a clause. Because, because your faith is proclaimed throughout all the world. Their faith, the church in Rome's faith, is proclaimed in all the world. Now it's interesting, when the Bible uses the word world, the world, the word world in the Bible can mean so many different things. What does this mean that their faith is proclaimed in all the world? Does that mean that everybody in the world had heard about this? Every man, woman, and child in the world had heard about the faith of Rome? <coughs> and I think it's important when we look at the Bible to use and to understand how words are used. Because sometimes we do what's called eisegesis. And eisegesis is the opposite of exegesis. Bear with me, these words matter. Exegesis is what we try to do every single week here. We want to expose the text. We want to preach what the text says. Whatever God's word says, that, that section of scripture should determine the section or the, the structure of the sermon. 
If that passage is what we're preaching, and if that passage has a particular tone to it, if it's very compassionate and tender, then the preaching of that passage should match the tone of the passage, compassionate and tender. The sermon structure should match the structure of the text. Whatever the passage is, that's how the sermon should be preached. It's exegesis. We're exposing what is in the Bible, what God has actually said. Eisegesis is what we want to avoid, and I want you to listen to every time I preach. Eisegesis is putting things in the text that the preacher sees, not what's actually there. And eisegesis abounds. We put meaning into texts that are not there. And that's what we want to avoid. Anybody who wants to stand or teach or, 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 or learn God's word, the goal is, as you're studying at home, is what does the text actually say, not what do I want the text to say, or what do I think the text says. When we think about things like this, it's important for us to consider the word world. Now, in the Bible, in 1 John chapter 2, we're told, we're told this, do not love the world or anything of the world. Okay. Do not love the world or anything of the world. Okay, so I need to not love the world. But what's the most famous Bible, Bible verse in all the, well, in all the Bible? What's the most famous Bible? Tim Tebow knows it. You guys know it. For God so loved the world. So what is it? Okay, so the Bible's language about the world is really dynamic. Sometimes the world is referred to as like the structure of the world or the system of the world or the principalities and powers of the world, the culture of the world. Sometimes the world means the cosmos, like everything the world means, not just this earth, it means the entire cosmos, like the sun, the moon, the stars, the cosmos. Sometimes the world means the people of the world. Sometimes the world means Jews and Gentiles, so not just Jews, but Gentiles, which would qualify as being the world. And we need to understand, when we read this, so we don't do eisegetical work, what Paul is saying. That their faith has been proclaimed throughout all the world. Well, this dynamic word in this section means, I think, that Paul is saying that both Jews and Gentiles, or the known world at the time, had all heard that this mighty Rome, that mighty Rome now has faith in Jesus Christ. I think what Paul is saying is that throughout the world, throughout the known world, both Jews and Gentiles throughout the known world have heard that the gospel of Jesus has made it all the way to the most important city in all of the world, Rome. And when it comes to Jesus, Rome is no match for Jesus. It's fascinating to see that the gospel, we don't know who planted the church in Rome. The most important city in the entire world, we have no idea who brought the gospel to Rome. And here this city is beginning to be changed, and within a couple hundred years it would be completely turned upside down to the point that the actual city and empire is a Christian empire. Isn't that amazing? The whole known world, they were standing in awe, and Paul was telling them, I want you to know, church at Rome, that the testimony about what Jesus is doing among you has reached everywhere. People are hearing about the work of God in Rome. Word has spread, Jesus has made his way, and he is on display, his power, in the city. Pretty cool. He goes on, and Paul begins to tell about his love for the church. Oh, he loves this church. I want you to see the heart of Paul in 9 through 11 again. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always with my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may at least now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long for you to see you. 
Now, just name out loud the top cities in the world that you would love to see if you've not been there. What, what are some cities, destination cities globally that you would love to see? Just say them out loud. Okay, Paris. All right, Paris. Where else? Where? Dublin, Ireland. Dublin, I've been there. It's very cool. Okay, where? Venice. Venice, okay, yeah. Okay, where else? Now, this isn't a trick question. You need to include the book of Romans here, so the city. All right. So somebody just help me out here. Any, anybody? Yes. Oh, Rome. We want to see the Roman Empire. Venice, Rome. We want, to, we want to go to Rome. We want to see Rome. We want to see Italy, Rome. All these, these are destination regions. And why would you want to go see the city of Rome? What are some, like, destination sites, not just destination city? If you went to Rome, what, what would be on the top of your list to see in Rome? Colosseum. Wouldn't that be cool? To walk in the Colosseum and just imagine all the people there and the warriors and gladiator, you know, my Maximus Meridius, son of the... Andy knows that, that movie. And I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Oh, my gosh. What a great scene. So what else? The Pantheon. You want to go see the Pantheon. What we call the road called Straight. You want to go see a lot of different sites in the city of Rome. Rome has been a destination city for a very, very long time. But here's what's so neat. Paul doesn't want to go there to see the Colosseum. He's not eager to get to Rome to see the Pantheon. He's not eager to get to Rome to see the history. What has his heart and attention in this city is the little church in Rome. I long to see you. Not long to see the city of Rome. I long to see you. You have my heart, believers. I want to meet you and I want to see you. Your faith has been proclaimed throughout the whole world. And I've never been to Rome and I don't care to be in Rome. I just want to see you. That's why I want to get to Rome. How many people have gone on vacation before to a destination city only to go there primarily to, to meet the Christians there? Vacation for so many is like, all oh, right, we don't have to go to church on Sunday morning. We can sleep in. Like, we can have Sunday off. For Paul, he's like, the whole reason I'm going there is to meet this little ragtag bunch. I want to meet the believers in Rome. I've heard about you. I long to see you. I know a couple of you, but I just long to see you and to meet you. I want to come to Rome not to see the Colosseum, but to see you. My heart longs for you. That's astounding to me. If I got a freeway pass or free trip to Rome, the thought of gathering with a group of believers there would be down on the list because I'd be so consumed with seeing the Colosseum or eating the food or getting into underground Rome that the History Channel talks about. I'd want to see those things. But for Paul, his heart is to see this little church in Rome. That's what Paul, why Paul wants to go there. That's why he's praying is, I want to be there. I want to meet you. I'm thinking so much about you and consistently praying for you. And then in his prayer, he says, God is my witness. He is praying without ceasing, mentioning them specifically to God, that he may somehow, somehow, God, would you please let me get to Rome. I want to succeed in coming to you, and I want to help you and impart a spiritual gift to you. God, please, I long to see my family in Rome. And I want to give you three summaries to consider, about, to consider three takeaways to consider. And then I want to finish with the gospel. And I want to be challenged by Apostle Paul today. In our world today, there was a day when generations passed that families, every time the door was open to church, they were there. And every time they could possibly be there, they just were there. It didn't matter what it was. And maybe that's because that was guilting people to be there. I don't know. But I have to think that there was some element of people just liking each other. Even the people that they didn't like, they, they liked gathering together. 
doesn't matter. That you don't have to just necessarily like each other, like everybody's best friends and all that sort of thing. But what I see in history and throughout the world and in the New Testament is that the churches gathering together, they longed for that. And in younger generations, it's really easy that have come up because life is so crazy and so busy. And when we have families, it's easy for other things to become a priority. It just is. That's why sports are going to be a bad one. All our kids are old enough to do sports and stuff on a Sunday morning. I tell you what, I'm going to be the thorn in the side of a few coaches. I'm going to say, I don't care what you say. We're not, we're, not, we're not doing this on the Lord's Day. And I don't care if that means my son can't be on the team or not or if he's kicking and screaming, but we're not gathering on Sunday. Sorry, we're, we're, we're going to be with our family on Sunday. It's easy for me to say now, by the way, when my son's four. I hope, hold on, I keep messing with this bottle. Let me just take a drink. But I want to see three takeaways from Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 11a, and then I want to bring us to the gospel of Jesus. In this passage, we see that Paul is giving thanks to God for the church. When Paul considered these believers in Rome, he couldn't help but praise Jesus for it. Oh my goodness, that's a brother or sister. And I'm so thankful to God through Jesus Christ that I have church family. Consideration of other believers for Paul, the fact that people have been brought from death to life, brought him, his mind, and his heart to Jesus. And I think it should for us as well. Every time we see a believer, we're, we're seeing somebody who is loved by Jesus and changed by Jesus. Somebody whom Jesus has done a miracle in, brought from death to life. And I think for us, we ought to... Every time we see a believer, just stand in awe. My goodness, there is a dead man who is now alive. There is a dead woman who is now alive. And I cannot believe I get to be with all, throughout all eternity because of what Jesus has done for her. Only God can do this. Only God can make Christians. Christians have not made themselves Christians. God has. Every Christian is a testimony to the love and the power of Jesus to save and so when we look at each other's faces, eye to eye, shoulder to shoulder, remember they are testimonies of God's power. When we get to see these baptisms, we need to remember this is supernatural. Non non people who are born spiritually dead don't want to be Christians. Only God makes somebody want to be a Christian. Non-believers will never want to be a Christian unless God does something. And so when we see these today, we should be celebratory. My goodness. Hi. You're a testimony to the grace of Jesus. Consideration number two. Paul prayed for the church and so should we. As he's praying for this church, as he is praying, he, he's always praying for the church. As we are praying, we should be evaluating our prayer life. Are we praying for each other? Do we pray for each other's situations. Dan this morning told me about a situation tomorrow at 9 a.m. I put it in my phone because if I don't write it down, I'll forget about it. And tomorrow at 9 or 9.30, whenever my alarm goes off, I'm going to pause and I'm just going to pray. It won't be a 30-minute prayer or anything like that. It's just going to be a prayer. God, I ask that you would just lead Dan in this situation. I pray that, God, your will would be done here. And I pray that you would just use it for your glory. I need to be reminded to pray for the churches. He's constantly praying for other believers. Evaluate your prayer life. Do you spend more time praying about your life or the life of others? Are we so consumed in our prayers about me and my children that I'm not praying for you and your children? And I'm convicted by this because more often than not, I'm praying more about me and my family than I'm praying for you and your family. And that doesn't mean that I shouldn't be praying for me and my family. But as I look at my prayer life, as I'm driving or as I'm out mowing the yard, 
which will happen later today, by the way. And don't look at this yard right now, because I've not mowed it yet, because of the rain last week. So it'll be mowed Monday or Tuesday. As you're doing whatever you're doing, are you thinking about other believers? God, I, I, God I'm, I'm constantly, would you work in their lives? Would you help them break this bad habit in their life? Or would you help them overcome? Would you help their marriage? God, please intervene in their marriage because I want them to be, I want them not just to be gritting it out for the next 50 years. God, I want you to work powerfully in their marriage to where they actually like each other more than just staying together. Paul prayed for the church regularly. Do we pray that God would allow us to meet other Christians so we could help them out. Paul's specific prayer, we're going to get into it more next week, as he wants to go and he wants to impart to them a spiritual gift. He wants to help them. And I, I know that I want to be usable by God. I want God to use me in the lives of other people, and I want you to be used by God in the lives of other people. This just Jesus and me thing is absolute nonsense from the enemy in the flesh that says, well, I can love Jesus and not love the church. That's garbage. You walk up and tell Jesus, hey, Jesus, I love you, but I don't like your bride, and see how well that goes. We're messed up. But Jesus isn't. And we're called to love the bride to love one another, to pray for one another. Those who love Jesus are growing to love his wife. Anybody who loves Jesus and says, oh, I just do Jesus and me, you can know that he doesn't really love Jesus that much, or she doesn't, because they're completely clueless about what Jesus loves. Because Jesus loves his bride, and so should we. Number three, genuine love for the church. I long to see you, he says. First world countries have the liberty to not long to have to be with church families. First world countries have the liberty to do things independently apart from anybody else. That's why loneliness and depression and medicated loneliness and depression, even though there are chemical things and physiological things that go on, we live in such an isolated society that demands everybody recognize our freedom. And here we are in bondage claiming that we don't need anybody or anything. For the Christians throughout this world who are experiencing persecutions, they know this is not just Jesus and me. I need people. And I need to give my life to other people. There's going to be a time that other people give their life to me. I need to give myself away to the bride of Christ. And the question I have for you, and to be brutally honest, there's times that I don't want to gather. I'd just rather be by myself. The older I get, the more introverted I get. Anybody else in here? Just people annoy me for some reason. It's like I could be, I could be content just being by myself. It's not good. It's not good. Now, not you guys, obviously. Only to be honest, I'm sure I annoy plenty of people in here. But we love each other. That's what family does. Do we love gathering together? Do you love and do you long to be with other believers? And here's a convicting question, not a condemning question. If not, if not, why? Why? Do you like gathering on Sunday mornings? I know, with, especially with families with young kids, it's so hard. My goodness, our kids are crazy. Like, and they make life hard. And they just do. And we love them, they're amazing. And they're terrible. 
And they're amazing. And church life, especially with young families, it's hard when your kids are young, especially for moms. It's just hard. But I think for all of us, a convicting question we should be asking, do we long to be with the people of God? May we grow more and more desirous to be with God's people over time. Loving people the way Paul did. How about this? Can we pray, you individually, us as a group, can we pray that God would work these things that we see in the Apostle Paul in us? Now, I want to bring us to the Gospel of Jesus in verse 9. Because anytime we hear should or get examples of what we should imitate, the Bible is so repetitive. And we need to always be reminded as we're being commissioned to, to obey, to follow God, to do this, to be changed, to be convicted, to pray about these things in your life to repent and turn to Jesus or to model the life of Jesus or to model the life of Paul or to model the life of anybody. We need to be reminded about the gospel of Jesus here because we're not presenting to anybody a works-based salvation or presenting in anybody to anybody a way of making God really, really happy with you if you'll just do these things. You can be better and live better kind of stuff. You need to be and I need to be reminded of the gospel of Jesus. Look at verse 9 again. For God is my witness, who I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. So his service, who I serve with my spirit, the, the service of the Apostle Paul, his work for God, is done in the gospel of his beloved Son. In the gospel of his Son, Jesus Christ. His service is done in the gospel. There's this connection that Paul always gets to. Paul serves... From a position, he obeys Jesus, follows Jesus, loves and prays, prays without ceasing. He does all these things in the context of positionally being in the gospel of his son. He is secure in Christ. True and proper Christian service. Please hear me say this. Is done in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not earn anything from God. We do not earn the gospel of Jesus Christ. We serve in the good news of Jesus Christ. As we look at Paul, we see a man that I think would convict many of us. We look at this guy and it's kind of like, if you've ever known like a, a wise, godly, older, sage person in your life, a man or a woman who just walks with humility and grace, and you look at them and think, my goodness, I have so far to go. They would never make you feel like that. They would never say, yeah, you do. You really need to be like me. But as you look at them, you just get convicted. You think, man, I want to be like them. And I think Paul serves as this positive example of serving in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the Apostle Paul, he is not trying to earn anything from God. He's not trying to love people and pray for them so God would be happy with them. He just, he just loves them. He longs to be with them in the, gospel of Jesus, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think we've all been convicted by the life of another Christian. They love so much, love Jesus so much, those Christians do, and they serve him so much and others so well that their life 
is it's laid over our life. We look at our life and just think, man, there's conviction there, not condemnation. But here's what the enemy does with passages like this or with people like that in your life. The enemy and the flesh are always at work to turn conviction into condemnation. And if the flesh can turn and the enemy can turn conviction into condemnation, he can get you or the flesh can get you to just say, well, that's condemnation and I don't need to hear that or think about that. And then you push conviction away because you think it's condemnation. And I want us to be convicted about things like our prayer lives. I want personally to be convicted about praying for God to bring revival or praying or longing to be with the church. I want to love people, God's people, more than I do. And I want to feel conviction about that. But the flesh, flesh rises up or the enemy rises up. That's condemnation. That's condemnation. That's condemnation. And I know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I suppress the good law of God. I think, well, that's just the law. Or that's just whatever. And I miss opportunities to grow in grace, grow and serve in the gospel of Jesus Christ because the flesh and the enemy has convinced me that's just legalism. And friends, to look at the life of Paul and to say, I want to be like Paul. I want to pray the kind of prayers that Paul prayed. I want to grow in personal disciplines. I want to long after the heart of God in the way Paul does. I want to be able to abandon literary style and abandon my plans because the Holy Spirit of God is moving in that way. We should want that. And it's not legalistic to want that. Paul did this in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when we see things like this with Paul, and I'm praying always for you in my prayers, asking that God would make me just, I long for you. I, I don't care about the Colosseum. I care about you. And we can start to feel less than or like a Christian bum. Other people got it going on, but not me, because I want to be home watching the football game. Which, I mean, to be honest, you know, Sunday I'm wanting to get out of here to watch football games during football season. And you can start to get condemned and all this kind of stuff. But when you know, like Paul, he reminds us that all of this is in the context of Jesus Christ. And as we go through the book of Romans, we're going to get commands to us that we are called to do. We get to Romans chapter 12. Hey, abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Like, don't take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And we don't have to be vengeful. We're going to hear things to do. And by God's grace, we want to become these kinds of people. I want us to be like Paul. I know I want to be like Paul, but when you know that this is happening in the context of Jesus Christ, serving with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that we are secure in Christ, that we are his, that the work is finished, that Jesus fulfilled all the law of God in our place, we are free to look at things like this and say, I want to be like that. God, make me like that. Make me a better man. Make me a better woman. God, do this in me. I want to long for the church and pray for the church more than I pray for myself. And when you know that you're secure in Christ, you're free. You're free. When you know there's no condemnation for you, when you know your position in Christ, you can become better. You can become more Christ-like. When you know you're in the gospel of God, you can confess, I don't love the church like I should. God, help me. Heavenly Father, help me see the wonder that is a Christian. Help me see the beauty of your grace in their face. You're free to pray prayers like that. So beloved, you're in Christ. You're secure. But be convicted. Feel it. Feel the Holy Spirit of God pressing in areas of your life. Cry out to God. 
God, help me love the bride. Help me love your church like Paul loved the church. Pray prayers like that. And by God's grace, let's see what happens. Let's see what God does. You don't want to be bored, dads, moms, and grandma and grandpas, when you come to church. You just gut it out because you want your kids in church. Your kids grow up and be bored Christians just like you. We don't want that. Thankfully here, we have a congregation, a gathering full of people who are on fire for Jesus Christ. That love Jesus. And I'm so thankful to serve alongside of you. And some of these prayers, I, I, I am so grateful for the people God is assimilating here. I see your love and your passion for God's word and for each other. And I am thrilled. And I want it to happen more. I want to see God work. Let's pray and trust that he will. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. and I thank